Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers through the years. We are in that time period of the Middle Ages, and again, this just affords us more opportunity to reflect with men and women who provide for us subject matter that allows us to not only better understand our faith and, and what they write and how they preach, but also uh, how they live their lives. I mean, these are men and women of charity. Uh, and so this will be a point we focus on, and I say we because I do have John O'Hare with me in studio. John, great to have you with me another evening. Great to be here again, Joe. Thank you. John, I got a question uh, recently. Does the church have a uh, smart person problem? The baseline question was more about, is the church so caught up in the thinking that they have forgot about the person in the pew? And uh, the answer to that question is simply yes and no. Uh, Yes, well, there's always more evangelization that can be done. There's always more questions to be asked about how we can reach the person in the pew. But the answer is also no in the sense that the church... Uh, doesn't have a, a thinking problem because thinking and the intellect is necessary. I think it's how we think about the intellect, huh, John? I mean, we often tie the intellect as an analogy to computers and cameras. Uh, what do I mean? Well, computers calculate, cameras snap shots, they, they grab hold of a moment and they take a picture of it. Um, we calculate based upon what we see. But the mind is also an organ of wisdom, huh? When the mind is not ravaged by impure images and is subject to a heart that is pure, greatness is awakened. We spend time with the figures that we have been spending time with to just not highlight how much they've contributed and what they have written or how much they have contributed and what they have said, but how much they have contributed because what they have done in acts of love to bridge that gap between the thinking person and the acting person. That's what uh, this evening is all about from one week to the next, to show that the great Christian thinkers are also saints and saints because of how their mind and intellect was subject to the heart. And ultimately, that wisdom is acquired not by studying this or that, but by going deeper in faith and seeing faith as a way of knowing And ultimately, in light of that faith, in light of that knowing, the intellect is now made to see what it needs to see. That is the deeper truth underneath the surface. So if the church has a problem, it's not so much a problem of the intellect, but a problem of the heart of impurity and pride. Pride, huh, John? Certainly intellectual pride, spiritual pride has ravaged many souls. And by the grace of God, go all of us that we don't slip into that kind of intellectual and spiritual pride, huh? I would like to throw in here something off-topic. Natural law. Mm. The founding document of a wonderful country begins, we hold these truths to be Mm self-evident. If you have natural law in your heart, these truths 
our self-evident. Mm-hmm. Now, today happens to be the feast day of St. Justin Martyr, one of our earlier saints that we discussed. Yes. A great philosopher. And um, uh, he remember he saw a man on the beach, and mm-hmm. this guy was a philosopher. He became a philosopher, a Christian philosopher, and died in 165. He was beheaded, I guess, still going on, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, wrote some great stuff. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Father of the Church, St. Justin Martyr, yes. And our saint today... St. Albert Magnus, Latin, Magnus being the Latin word for great, St. Albert the Great, and he didn't give that name to himself. That name was no. given to him by one of his contemporaries, a man named Ulrich of Strasbourg called him the wonder and miracle of our epic. Mm. He got that nickname, if you want to, by his contemporaries at the time. That's right, and that really highlights a key point for us, John, something that I was asked about again recently. Joe, what makes a saint great? I mean, after they died, do we look at their life and we say, well, this saint was more great than than that saint? No. What we are to appreciate is these men, and again, women who have these titles, merit their titles based upon the time they lived in and the titles they received from their peers, right? You just uh, spoke of one Ulrich who, in his own way, declared St. Albert a great, but many of his peers saw him great. We talked about St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Great. How about uh, Bede the Venerable? All of these men received those titles uh, during their time here on earth, because of what they were achieving, and their peers just had such a deep respect for the greatness, if you will, of what they were doing, that they conferred these titles upon them. And the Church respects that. The Church honors that. So yeah, history now knows some men as great. St. Basil, St. Gregory, so on and so forth. Certainly our figure this evening, St. Albert the Great, who again, you talk about St. Justin, John, uh, St. Justin the Martyr, he was a great thinker, yes, but he was a man of deep holiness. Right. Uh, again, St. Albert, a great thinker, literally, Magnus, but also a man of holiness. So that being said, John, what can we say more about uh, this great saint? He was born in 1206 in Swabia, and if you know Germany, the city of Ulm, U-L-M, is about 100 miles to the west of Munich. Now, that's mm-hmm. where he had his beginnings. And he came from a well-to-do family, and uh, one of the advantages of having a well-to-do family is your education. We've had well-to-do saints before, not all of them, but some of them were. And one of the advantages, you seem to get a pretty good education. You can get a good education. Yes. And he went to the University of Padua about a, as a 17-year-old. And uh, there was a Dominican uh, thinking institute around there, and mm-hmm. he fell in with a guy named Blessed Jordan of Saxony, who was a Dominican. And uh, this guy impressed him, and he wanted to become a Dominican. His family didn't like that idea. They thought he should be a Franciscan if he wanted to be a priest at all. Dominican is what he chose, and he was ordained a priest somewhat early, and he was talented from the Mm get-go, and this was obvious. And he was sent into Europe where he uh, got into university teaching, and he was a master. Now, the word master in those days means Ph.D., Mm -hmm. and that means that you could uh, run a university and he was a master at Paris, and he was also asked to start the Dominican House of Studies in Cologne, Germany, which he did. So he kind of did both of those. On a trip to Paris, he came across a young man named Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> he said, why don't you come to Cologne with me? Thomas Aquinas did that. And Albert the Great is known as the teacher of Thomas Aquinas. I know that he did lots of things, but that seems to be the most celebrity-type uh, yeah. thing that he did. Yeah, and uh, that merit 
alone p- provides for him, you know, a, a, quite a bit of, of recognition. It's interesting. We talked about uh, Paul before and Rabbi Gamaliel. Rabbi Gamaliel was the rabbi of rabbis we uh, read about yes. in Acts 5. Um, it was said of Rabbi Gamaliel that, you know, when he died, the glory of the Torah died. Oh. And what do they mean? You know, what is meant by that? Well, <laughs> he was a great teacher, the greatest of Jewish teachers, of course, aside of Christ. At least he was seen that way. And so when the rumor mill started that uh, uh, his prized pupil Saul had this great conversion, Paul, there was a lot of respect owed to Paul. Well, it's to remember, <laughs> we know in history Thomas Aquinas probably better than we know St. Albert the Great, but in reality, if you were to go back into this time period, John, if you were talking to St. Thomas Aquinas and the discussion was, he is Albert's prize pupil, a lot of people would have paid close attention to Thomas Aquinas. So you find that dynamic going on in history. I think it's important to be present yes. to that because um, Thomas Aquinas's rise while it certainly was tied to his great works, was also very much connected to uh, Albert the Great. And as we'll get into a little bit, John, Thomas Aquinas owes a great deal to Albert the Great, especially later in life as he was helping people understand some of his works. That is correct. Which I think is very relevant when you start talking about how we know him in history. So Albert the Great, very important figure. Yeah, remember, Albert the Great outlived Thomas Aquinas by by some years. Yes. And uh, Thomas Aquinas was coming under attack after Aquinas' death, and Albert the Great said, no, wait, 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 there's nothing heretical in this. And he explained a lot about Thomas's teaching that was hugely valuable. Mm -hmm. Now, let me give you a little quote from Benedict XVI's book on him. Mm. Here it is. It'll take about 30 seconds. His method consisted simply in the observation, description, and classification of phenomena he had studied. But it was in this way that he opened the door for future research. Why would I read that? Mm. One of the hot items at this time was Aristotle. He was coming in big. Now, Aristotle was different from Plato. Aristotle was Plato's B pupil, if you mm, want to assign a grade yes, to him, because yeah, yeah. he had some disagreements with his <laughs> yes, master. Oh, yes. And uh, remember, Aristotle's first really big book was called Physics. Mm-hmm. Now, physics is the study of nature. Remember, mm-hmm. the, if you want to define physics as the study of energy's effect on, on matter. Aristotle went around and he observed things, and he wrote about these in detail. I mean, he was a real scientist mm-hmm. uh, way back around 350 B.C., and he was, beginning, he was getting a lot of attention, so therefore Albert Magnus, Albert the Great, did scientific observation. And he wrote a lot in a various areas of science, particularly biology and natural science. He also wrote a summa on the- theology. His writing on theology was not as precise as Thomas Aquinas's. No, and, no. Uh, and that, that, that's the problem, but he did some really good work on, on various aspects of science, yeah, I've got a list right here, John, just looking down on my notes. I mean, listen to some of these areas. He studied physics, uh, chemistry, astronomy, uh, mineralogy, <laughs> botany, uh, zoology. Yeah, so he was observing a lot of the uh, physical sciences, and it's interesting. For this reason, uh, Pius Twelfth named him patron of enthusiasts of the natural sciences and also called him Dr. Universalis, right? The universal doctor precisely because of the vastness of his interests and knowledge. So that alone 
uh, speaks to his greatness, huh? Now, when he was at the University of Padua, he got what was called a liberal education. Now, that is not what a liberal liberal education is kind of been. One of the things they studied in there was grammar, good, because Latin was the key. Yes. Okay. Rhetoric, uh, St. Augustine, professor of rhetoric. Yeah. Dialectics, okay, how do you construct a good logical argumentarian mm-hmm. tearing one apart? Uh, and natural sciences, all of these were part, and music. Music was part of your liberal education. So, I mean, it was kind of a wide-ranging education in some of the real basics. Nothing PC was 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 there. Yeah. And what's interesting about this, uh, when you think about it, John, is, okay, he studied all of these uh, liberal arts, as Benedict XVI called them, and by doing so, what he was doing was studying culture as a whole. Yeah. And because of this, he was able to reach his audience when he was preaching, when he was speaking, and even in his writing. And I think, again, we can never highlight that piece enough that when you have someone uh, who is so versed in understanding all of the different genres of culture, they are going to be able to speak their language. And uh, this is invaluable for us today because uh, St. Albert the Great really does emerge as someone, John, that we can turn to to better understand what, as we've talked about so much, the new evangelization is all about. Uh, we need to study the culture uh, to appreciate where wow, it's at, yeah. you know, and how we can in turn reach the culture person by person. Just to go back a little bit, Peter Lombard in his book, The Sentences. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the most remarked upon book probably into the 15th century, yes. 1400s. And what you had to do is respond to the questions he raised in the sentences. So if you were going to begin as a university student, you had to give responses to these issues that he raised, that Peter mm-hmm. Lombard raised. And so Albert and Thomas Aquinas, all had, everybody had to do this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this was a certain uniformity in medieval education back in those times. And of course, Albert did that, as did everybody else. But it got you back to some really important questions. Yeah, and and John, what's important to what you're saying here is it gets us back to asking questions. Yes. Yeah, you need to ask the right question, but today we've stopped asking questions, period. We just have made the assumption that uh, everything is relative and there's nothing definitive and... uh, All's well that ends well if we don't have to be told what to do. You there know? is no truth. We have 10,000 PhDs in philosophy, <laughs> and I don't think anyone agrees with the other one, although they've all had courses in logic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really fascinating, John, when I was in some of these tutorials at Oxford University, where half the group was very much caught up in this relative um, ideology of, well, it doesn't matter what you say, all that matters is oh. that we all have something to say, and we don't need to agree on any one thing as long as we just uh, agree to just, you know, disagree. And then the other half of this roundtable discussion was, well, no, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he speaks in the imperative sense and the absolute truth, so we move towards truth itself, right? Yeah. So we would have these fascinating discussions. And to go back into a point you were just speaking to, if the roundtable discussion uh, was a good roundtable discussion, we would move towards asking questions. And in asking the question, one of the individuals in the roundtable discussion that was not taking ownership of what they were saying would finally take ownership. Really, it's appreciating, well, that dynamic that Jesus himself teaches us. It's yeah. to remember that yeah. Jesus Christ is asked over 300 questions. And he responds over 300 yeah. times to the question with a question. Right. 
because he wants the person asking him the question to take ownership of what he or she is saying. And in a similar way, you have this kind of dynamic going on 800 years ago. The motto of Harvard University is very toss if you take a look. Actually, there's more to it than that. It's written in stone is, I am the way, the truth, something like that. Quotation Mm -hmm. by Christ. Yes. However, and it's in stone there at the campus if you go there. I mean, you can photograph it. Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. uh, that motto has been reduced down to yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever you want it to yeah, be. Yeah. Truth. The truth is is only arbitrary. Right. Only what we make it out to be. Well, he was uh, at the Council of Lions in 1274, which dealt with the uh, uh, which dealt with the break of 1054 between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. They didn't solve that, unfortunately. He also wrote uh, 38 volumes. That's that's a lot of writing. Albert uh, Albert the Great did. He also influenced some of his subsequent students. Were. Uh, Meister Eckhart and Johannes Tauler. Mm-hmm. And now they got into mystical theology, and we were in mystical theology last week with uh, Hildegard Bingen. Yes. And, um, but he influenced these two gentlemen in mystical theology, and if you uh, subscribe to the Magnificat, the Mass Magazine, you will find almost every month a, 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 a page by one of those two writers. And you really... Got a Dominican uh, publication. Yes, yeah. yes, you really do. Uh, they are giants in, in the world of mystical theology. When you study the spiritual life, certainly um, you will find those names. And again, the, the point to be had here is, you know, we emphasized last week that the Church today is emphasizing the importance of mystical theology, that we are all called... Uh, to go to God, to receive this gift of desiring more of God, to go deeper in our personal relationship with God. You know, you talk about 38 volumes, you, you talk about the richness of St. Albert the Great studying the natural sciences, studying Aristotle, and he's not studying these in the abstract. Yeah. No, he's studying uh, the sciences so as to better understand God. Yeah, We can rightfully say that above all, St. Albert shows that there is no opposition between faith and science, huh? I mean, the Bible speaks to us of creation as the first language through which God speaks to us, right? I mean, you look at the Book of Wisdom, for example. It says that the phenomena of nature endowed with greatness and beauty is like the works of an artist, through which, by analogy, we may know the author of creation. If you go to the Book of Wisdom, chapter 13, verse 5, he shows us the complementarity between faith and reason. So important. Uh, And in light of this, many scientists in the wake, John, of the research and work of St. Albert the Great have been inspired to carry on his research, awakened to the reality that creation is a work of of a wise and loving creator. Essentially, in light of St. Albert the Great, uh, scientific study itself was transformed, we can say, into a hymn of praise, Benedict XVI quotes one Enrico Meri, a great astrophysicist of our time, whose cause of beatification has been introduced. He wrote, O you mysterious galaxies, I see you, I calculate you, I understand you, I study you and I discover you, I penetrate you and I gather you. From you I take light and make it knowledge, I take movement and make it wisdom, I take sparkling colors and make them poetry. He goes on to say, I take you stars in my hands and trembling in the oneness of my being. I raise you above yourselves and offer you in prayer to the Creator that through me alone you stars can worship. I mean, listen to that wonderful hymn of praise. 
This is the kind of thing that comes to us because of the influence of one St. Albert the Great. Um, he lived to be about 76 years old, as I say, Thomas Aquinas died at age 49. Now, uh, the last couple of years of his life, he seems to have come down with dementia. Alzheimer was not a word used back then. No. But anyway, he stopped. I mean, he was certainly alive, and but he just could not respond the way he used to. And it must have been humiliating. I don't mm. know what it's like to have dementia. Maybe I'll find out someday. But um, he just, I mean, he still was a holy person, but he just was not there. He may have had a stroke, who knows. Mm -hmm. And he had this for two years before he passed away. Yeah, and to speak of uh, what he experienced at the end of his days reminds me of John Paul II. In fact, I was thinking about this this morning. I'm glad you brought this up, John. A lot of people have remarked about how sad it was to watch John Paul II at the end of his life. No. Yes. No. No. What we are made to see is that the greatest achievement of man is to better understand not this scientific proof or or that scientific formula, but how we are called to offer ourselves to God in our suffering, right? This is the real uh, mark of the greatness of man. We talk about St. Albert being great. Uh, We talk about John Paul II being great. He hasn't officially received that title, but certainly a lot of people are calling him great. The, The crowning achievement to their greatness is the way in which they did offer up their suffering to God. So, you have a man like Albert, St. Albert, you have a man like John Paul II, who at the end of their days, we say, how sad. But that's secular culture, John, saying yes. how sad. If you go into sacred scripture, what does Paul say? Right? Paul speaks directly to the importance of us offering up our suffering to God and how this really is a profound sharing in the very life of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ and becomes in of itself a great gift. Now, he was the Bishop of Regensburg for two years, 1260-1262, and that diocese had a lot of trouble, and there was no time to write or do any stuff. He was in there trying to deal with contentious forces in that diocese. He was an administrator, and he could work with people. I found that must have been something he didn't want to do. He told the Pope, I don't want to do this, but he did it anyway, and was the Bishop there for two years. And he also was the uh, Pope's theologian, for several years. He held mm-hmm. that position. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and his, now his feast day is November the 15th, the day he died. Yeah, Alexander the Fourth, right, Pope Alexander the yeah, Fourth. Yeah, and, and you know, as you speak to that, John, one of the earmarks to a man of holiness is, and we've seen this before, is their willingness to do whatever, whatever is asked of them. So often today, we are told to do this or, or to do that, and we resist it. And in religious life, if your superior asks you to do something, your superior is in persona Christi, is in the person of Christ, yes. right? Uh, vicarious Christi. And ultimately, what we are made to see there is the importance of, of obedience. In fact, one uh, St. Pio once said that, in the end, the greatest sign of Christ living within you is obedience to your wow. superior. Because it is that complete and utter dying to self dying to your want, dying to your desire, dying to what you think you should do. Ah, but to say yes to your superior, go over there or go over here. For St. Peel, that is the mark of a saint, the willingness to do whatever God wants you to do and God working through your superior. So you see this in one St. Albert the Great. I know I don't want to do that, but by the grace of God go I, I will do it willingly and certainly yes. lovingly with charity, wow, because God. one of the things that 
you read about in the life of St. Albert the Great, while he was a man of uh, the sciences and was a man of prayer, he was also a man of holiness and charity. Yep. In fact, he was resurrecting one parish after another because of his great charitable works. Yes, he was very organized. Another um, mark you see of so many uh, saints, they're organized. They have a sense of moving sequentially from one thing to the next so as to build a foundation and establish you know, something um, that can survive, that can withstand the test of time. Above all else, he understood, as many saints do, John, that charity is the driving force to any uh, structure that you lay out. And so you see Benedict XVI and others who talk about St. Albert the Great speak to how he led with charity. And love means self-sacrifice. Yes, That's what it really yes, means. it does. I mean, there's you know, the, we've spoken to the different forms of love, the different levels of love. The highest form of love, agape, yeah. is divine sacrificial love. Yeah. And uh, he entered into that, John, for sure. John, by way of a close, what I wanted to do, uh, you had come in with the Office of Readings from the Divine Office. Uh, this is um, uh, fortuitous. Uh, I don't want to say coincidence, so if we're going to say coincidence, coincidence is, is simply as one just reminded me, uh, God wishing to remain anonymous, <laughs> because there's nothing, nothing yeah, okay, that's such right. as uh, coincidence. I like that right? definition of coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Um, this Sunday is uh, Corpus Christi Sunday, right? And it just so happens that St. Albert the Great's uh, reflection on his feast day is tied to Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. And so I thought it'd be nice to close with something from him. We don't do a lot of reading on the radio, but I just thought this was too good to pass up. So uh, this is St. Albert the Great reflecting on the, the words, do this in remembrance of me. Two things should be noted here. The first is the command that we should use the sacrament, which is indicated when he says, do this. The second is that this sacrament commemorates the Lord's going to death for our sake. Do this. Certainly, he would demand nothing more profitable, nothing more pleasant, nothing more beneficial, nothing more desirable, nothing more similar to eternal life. We will look at each of these qualities separately. This sacrament is profitable because it grants remission of sins. It is most useful because it bestows the fullness of grace on us in this life. The Father of Spirits, he says, instructs us in what is useful for our sanctification. And his sanctification is in Christ's sacrifice. That is, when he offers himself in this sacrament to the Father for our redemption, to us for our use. I consecrate myself for their sakes. Christ, who through the Holy Spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, will cleanse our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. That point yeah, is so wow. important, John. Yeah. He goes on to say, Nor can we do anything more pleasant. For what is better than God manifesting his whole sweetness to us? You gave them bread from heaven, not the fruit of human labor, but a bread endowed with all delight and pleasant to every sense of taste. For this substance of yours revealed your kindness towards your children, and serving the desire of each recipient, it changed to suit each one's taste. He could not have commanded anything more beneficial, for this sacrament is the fruit of the tree of life. Anyone who receives this sacrament with the devotion of sincere faith will never taste death. It is a tree of life for those who grasp it, and blessed is he who holds it fast. 
nor could he have commanded anything more lovable, for this sacrament produces love and union. It is characteristic of the greatest love to give itself as food, as if to say, I have loved them and they have loved me so much that I desire to be within them, and they wish to receive me so that they may become my members. There is no more intimate or more natural means for them to be united to me and I to them. And he closes, nor could he have commanded anything which is more like eternal life. Eternal life flows from this sacrament because God, with all sweetness, pours himself out upon the blessed. Thank you of your opening remarks. I am proud and happy to be part of a church which has such great minds, mm. such holy and great minds, as part of its tradition. Amen, John. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.